The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Wall Street fell sharply on Friday, pushing the S&P 500 to a fourth straight weekly decline, despite a two-day rally earlier in the week. The Dow fell more than 2%, the S&P 500 dropped 2.8%, while the Nasdaq lost 3.8%. A solid September jobs report from the Labor Department suggested the Federal Reserve will stay the course with its aggressive interest rate hiking campaign. The state of Louisiana announcing it will pull nearly $800 million from BlackRock funds, the state's treasury, saying it is making that move over the asset management firm's push to embrace ESG strategies said that shift would cripple Louisiana's critical energy sector. It's already pulled $560 million from BlackRock, which faces increasing pressure over its ESG policies. In California, it now costs nearly $100 to fill up a mid-sized car. It's ridiculous. Nowhere more expensive than in the Golden State, where prices have soared $1.15 in just the past month. The AAA reports big weekly hikes not just in the West, but also the Midwest and spreading East, all the way to the White House, with the midterms just a month away. China remains probably the only large country in the world still sticking to a zero-COVID approach to the coronavirus pandemic. Ahead of China's twice-a-decade Communist Party Congress, authorities are tightening restrictions even further. The country's leadership is set for a shake-up And President Xi, who's expected to secure a precedent-breaking third term, has doubled down on China's zero-COVID approach to ensure stability. Vladimir Putin signing the final papers today to illegally annex four regions of Ukraine. But Russian forces are quite frankly struggling to keep control of those territories that the Kremlin insists are now part of Russia. Russians abandoning their homeland. Russian President Vladimir Putin's order to conscript men to fight in his war in Ukraine has created an exodus. The Kazakh government says more than 200,000 Russians fled to this country in less than two weeks. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. I think if I was to put a label on this week's trading, it's that little has changed. Stocks started to rally Monday and Tuesday due to positioning, meaning lots of cash on the sidelines. And that's according to Goldman Sachs' tactical flow of funds report, which showed that retail added $89 billion worth of money market inflows last week, with the largest inflow into cash since April 8 of 2020. And the report also stated that mutual fund cash flows are at all-time highs. So any move to the upside could spur short squeezes and fear of missing out on the rally by investors on the sidelines. There was a level of hope by the bulls that the Fed and other central banks would begin to ease off the gas on the rate hikes to allow markets to settle. This, of course, was expressed by Fed President Charles Evans last week following news of the Bank of England purchasing gilts for the next few weeks. In addition to that news, there was a lot of talk about Credit Suisse Bank's finances. Credit default swaps prices were on the rise for the bank as doubt looms. Uh, Moody said on Thursday that the bank could suffer $3 billion losses this year. But recently, the bank announced buying back $3 billion in debt and selling Landmark Hotel. 
Uh, the thought process Monday and Tuesday was that because of the financial instability and latest economic weakness, the central banks might pause. The Wall Street Journal published an article Monday that even the UN says central banks risk a global recession followed by prolonged stagnation if they keep raising rates. News that the Bank of Australia only raised 25 basis points on Tuesday versus the expected 50 seemed to align with this thinking. The issue with all of the hope is that we saw little change in the Fed futures, which were predicting around a 62% probability of a 75 basis point hike over the past week in through the rally Monday and Tuesday. Later in the week, we heard from Atlanta Fed President Bostic, voter in 2024, who said the inflation fight is still in the early days. Minneapolis Fed President Kashkari, a 2023 voter, said he won't pause until there's evidence of inflation slowing. So again, all of one accord. In addition to their comments, we got an increase in the private payrolls ADP report Wednesday, which came in at 208,000 versus 185,000 last week, suggesting if we see strength in the employment data Friday, it would go against the line of thinking that caused the rally uh, on the idea of economic weakness could slow the Fed or soothe the Fed. When the unemployment came out Friday, it was good enough to keep the Fed marching forth on its fight on inflation. Non-farm payrolls increased 263,000 and unemployment rate fell to about 3.5% from 37 This followed also other economic news this week, which was pretty good or decent, like the ISN non-manufacturing index, which was stronger than expected, up to 56.7. This was combined with bad news from AMD on Friday, which lowered its revenue and gross margin guidance for Q3, which then just resulted in stocks in a quite a bit of a correction on Friday as a result of that strong jobs report and the unfortunate news from AMD lowering its revenue and gross margin guidance. While stocks were up and then down this week, it was mostly all up for energy. There were rumors in Bloomberg uh, articles on Monday that OPEC will consider production reduction of 1 million barrels per day at their Wednesday meeting, causing oil prices and oil stocks to rise Monday. Uh, the Wall Street Journal followed that up on Tuesday, said no, it's 1.5 million barrels. Wednesday, OPEC announced a 2 million barrel per day production cut starting in November. To answer that, President Biden announced another 10 million barrel withdrawal from the strategic reserves to fight prices, which are already, those reserves are at the lowest level since 1984. While a short-term solution, it's creating some concern over the long term. West Texas Intermediate Crude finished the week at $92.64, up $13.15, or 16.5%, all in one week. The S&P energy sector was up 13.6% on the week, with industrial stocks following that only up 2.8, and behind that materials up 2.1. The weakest sector was real estate, down 4.1%, followed by utilities, down 2.7%. In my opinion, little has changed since September. While the stock market was oversold and positioning did set up for a nice contrarian rally, what got us here, a hawkish Fed hasn't changed in my mind. Post the jobs number Friday, Fed futures are predicting a 79.6% chance of a 75 basis point hike now compared to 56.5% chance last week. Come the next Fed meeting, November 2nd. That's it for the first week of October. Up next, Mark Chandler, Chief Market Strategist at Bannockburn Global Forex to talk about the current state of affairs for the macro outlook. 
Well, the unemployment rate fell, more jobs created, even though the participation rate declined. The market did not like this news. Now the market thinks the Fed is going to do it again with another 75 basis points in November. Well, let's find out what all this means. Joining us on the program is Mark Chandler. He's chief strategist at Bannockburn Global Forex. Mark, let's talk about the report that came out today, which is increasing the odds the Fed will continue to raise interest rates aggressively. Let's begin with that. It's true that the jobs market, the job creation is slowing, but it's still strong relative to where we were, say, pre-COVID. And to your point, the unemployment rate fell back down to its cyclical lows. And so I think when the Federal Reserve sits down and they talk about it, they will conclude that the labor market is still very strong, strong enough to withstand further rate hikes as inflation is elevated. And that's really the big story. I mean, so we got the jobs day today. That, that, that gets a lot of the headlines because it, that affects so many of us <laughs> directly. And, and that's about the real economy. Next week, attention is going to shift quickly now to next week's CPI report. And that CPI headline may slow, but the underlying core rate, excluding food and energy, reflecting a, a broadening of price pressures, is likely to rise back to its cyclical high. 6.5% back in March. So the Federal Reserve, their commentary, it's really encouraging the market to price it, to, to give up the idea of a Fed pivot. You know, it's funny, earlier this week when the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia hiked rates only 25 basis points, some people said, ah, this is a tell. We had that weak jolts data, and they said, okay, this is a sign. Uh, Central Federal Reserve is going to have a pivot again. And that helped the stock market trade higher. But as cooler heads prevailed, uh, it seemed more wishful thinking than reality. Mark, I want to get to an issue that we're starting to see cracks start to break out everywhere. And I now let's go over to Europe for a minute, because on the day you and I are speaking, we've got oil prices up a little over 94 bucks. Yeah. So you picture what the Europeans are paying for oil, 94 bucks, but... If you take a look at it, they're also paying for it in dollars, and the dollar has been going up. So that's like a one-two punch for the Europeans. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, Europe is in a tough position, and it's the energy shock. And on some ways, though, there's a bit of schadenfreude, you know, this like German concept of taking a pleasure at somebody else's misery. And, the you know, we've had several U.S. presidents argue that German energy policy was bringing them too close to Russia. And so I, I think that there's a, uh, you know, so Europe, even though the U.S. contracted in Q1 and Q2, it seems that the Eurozone economy is much more vulnerable and perhaps already in a recession. The Bundesbank is already warning of uh, contraction in the largest economy there. Offsetting the oil, though, natural, they're, they're a benchmark for natural gas prices, a, uh, a Dutch benchmark, is now essentially at its low since July. So they have gotten some reprieve from the natural gas market. But to your point, OPEC's decision to cut production, uh, I think, uh, is behind, is helping to squeeze these oil prices higher. You know, when when it comes to the Federal Reserve, uh, maybe to these are some of the cracks you're talking about. I see a lot of economists saying that maybe the maybe given given the strain that the world's bearing, maybe the Fed should like hold off more rate hikes. 
earlier this week, the UN, uh, an agency within the UN, said basically the same thing, that the central bank's aggressive rate hikes were going to drive the world into recession and then protracted stagnation. Next week, the World Bank and IMF have their annual meetings, and they're likely to also to have like very dour forecasts. But the U.S. argues, I think, rightfully, that Federal Reserve's mandate given to them by Congress is about domestic price stability, domestic economy. And that, of course, in its statement, every, every, every statement's got the phrase in it these days that says uh, that they do watch international variables. But it's really how those international variables affect us. And in my mind, the weakening of Europe into, you know, into a recession is going to also be another headwind for the U.S. economy, which is why I'm still negative on the broad, broadly on the U.S. economy. But on the other hand, I don't think that what OPEC did was really a snub at the U.S. any more than the Federal Reserve raising interest rates is a snub on the rest of the world. In the kind of world we live in, it doesn't have a world government. Nations, countries have to look out for their, their perceptions of their own self-interest. And I think that the OPEC decision to cut 2 million barrels is more about their national, what they think is national interest, but it also exaggerates the size of the cuts that's likely to be coming. Because many of those OPEC members didn't boost the output to their, to their uh, quotas. And so when, they, when the, these cuts are going to leave some of them without having to do anything. So I, I, I do think oil is moving higher. I think some of this is speculation. Some of this is supply concerns. Uh, but I think that we'll see what happens when China comes back. You know, China's been on holiday for a, a week now. And I'm under the impression that the, the shortage there is really coming from the products like distillates, gasoline, and diesel. And in fact, the U.S. administration, talking about national interest, has been talking, at least there's been reports suggesting that the administration is talking to U.S. Uh, oil and gas providers and trying to convince them, and the refiners, trying to convince them to voluntarily hold on to more inventory, which means to sell less abroad as we have a shortage here. China comes back and we'll see there's a lot of talk that Chinese refiners are going to be pushing out this shortage, you know, pushing the diesel out after buying a lot of oil recently. Mark, but what about the situation? If you look at inflation here, a lot of it is driven by energy. I mean, you know, it costs, uh, it takes energy to produce something it takes energy to transport things i mean energy works its way through the economy and you and i know the fed cannot create barrels of oil or a uh, thousand cubic feet of natural gas so you know what does the fed do if mark we're, we're looking at maybe a hundred dollar oil here shortly yeah i think that's where we're headed for sure uh so what, what should the fed do i think that the, the it's sort of like you know there's that uh quote from uh, Abraham Maslow, the, psychi the psychologist at the uh, old from the University of Chicago, he said, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And to me, what that means is the Federal Reserve cannot, like you say, produce oil. What they can do, and I think this is their strategy, is uh, what's the uh, proper word for it? Destruction of demand to bring it back to supply levels. So your supply is restrained, demand is too strong. And this is the Canadians, uh, the Bank of Canada Governor Macklem said the same thing uh, yesterday about Canada. Demand is stronger than supply. They have no control over supply, like you said, so they can just squeeze demand. And that's the strategy of tightening financial conditions. So but, but let's talk about if they do that. So let's say they send the economy into recession, tax revenues fall, they raise interest rates. 
in what about a third of the U.S. government debt is short term. So it's hard to believe that, you know, a year ago we had 10 year treasuries at less than a half a percent. So what's going to happen, Mark? We just crossed over 31 trillion. We're adding massive amounts of stimulus. If you take a look at what, four or five trillion dollars of new spending bills, what's going to happen when the government rolls over those T-bills and the Treasury is going to have to start paying, you know, 4% instead of one-tenth of a percent. Yeah, no, you raise a good point. It is, a, I think, a, a big concern is that the the cost of servicing America's debt is going to go up. So it's going to take a, a greater part of the budget. But I, to me, the, 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 the near-term problem is, and I see no sign. I mean, I think that if anything, the the demand for U.S. Treasuries is still fairly strong. I, I, I realize interest rates are going up. Several foreign central banks, including the Bank of Japan, sold Treasuries, uh, partly for intervention purposes, of course. But to me, the, the issue a couple of ways. One is I, I think that why, why I'm so negative on the U.S. economy is not just because of monetary tightening, but we are having an incredible reduction in government spending this year. Last year, the budget deficit was 10.8% of GDP. And to your point, that is, that's about those uh, COVID bills. But this year, the deficit is going to fall to four, around four and a quarter percent of GDP. You know, the, the magnitude of this, it took us several years after the great financial crisis to get that magnitude of fiscal reduction. So in my mind, you've got three big forces that are pushing the U.S. over the edge. One is monetary policy. Second, fiscal policy. And third, this ties into your oil observation as well, is that the past three business downturns in the U.S. took place after oil prices doubled. So my concern is that uh, the Federal Reserve and the government are tightening into an economic downturn, which is going to make it deeper. And then to your point, uh, we've taken out a lot of debt and the cost of carrying that debt is going to go up. But I'm not concerned. It doesn't seem to me that that is the uh, posing systemic risk. I mean, there there is a problem with liquidity in the Treasury market. And then to me, the impressive thing is that the so the, the volatility, the measure that we use in the bond market is called move, sort of the equivalent of the stock market's VIX. And that, the, the move index, the volatility of the bond market, is, this, is higher than it was in March of 2020. And yet there doesn't seem to be that systemic risk. We've seen some big moves, uh, but it doesn't seem to be, the banks seem to be in a better position to deal with it as if coming out of COVID, the pipes that carry all these finances, all these bonds that are traded through these pipes are a bit stronger than they were in March 2020. Unfortunately, not so much for the Bank of England. So, Mark, what about the situation where you have, uh, you know, what is this going to do to consumers? You've, you know, look what it's doing to the housing market. We're getting, what, close to 7% of mortgage rates. Refinancing has basically come to a standstill. I mean, who's refinancing our home when rates are at 7%? And if you're trying to kill off demand, which is what the Fed is doing, it's saying, look, we can't create barrels of oil but what we can do is reduce the demand for barrels of oil. What happens also in the corporate debt markets, too? Because you've got a lot of debt out there, and that debt's going to have to be rolled over. Are we in any risk, in your opinion, 
of, uh, let's say, a credit crisis on the corporate side? Yeah, this, uh, I mean, I from the outside, and I say it's from the outside because I'm I'm not as wired into uh, the uh, corporate bond market. I watch spreads, of course, but it, it, you know, and, and that's what the big deal has been in the past uh, couple of weeks is not so much corporate side, but uh, a uh, a large Swiss bank is rumored. People are watching the credit default swaps as as a, uh, as, a as a big event ahead of their earnings later this month. I think that the for me, I, I, I take your point seriously that the U.S. economy is still driven by the consumer. And the consumer is already being hit with uh, higher mortgage rates. But the amazing thing here is this is what the one of the things why I'm uh, sort of optimistic about the American resilience is that we have something that most other countries don't have, 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. What that means is that on the mortgage side, the biggest asset most of us own we're like protected from moves in interest rates. On the other hand, what really drives the economy is consumption. And I see the consumer being squeezed very hard right now. And I think that they, they're pursuing a strategy, a threefold strategy that I think is of limited duration. Here's the three things that they're doing. One is when they refinance their mortgages, they're taking equity out. Now the refinance business has dried up because as you say, the mortgage rates have jumped. So there's not much refi going on right now. And that's partly means that homeowners, what we're talking about is homeowners have already taken that equity out of their house. Not so much, not so much more is taking place now. Second thing they're doing is they're drawing down savings. Some of that savings that was built up during COVID drawing down to meet current needs. And the third thing they did is they're using, especially uh, in the last few months, record usage of credit cards. And that's, that's also a limited strategy. You know, the banks, we talk about Fed policy, that's really the price of wholesale money, three and a quarter. Retail money is not the same thing. Retail money is I paying 21% of my credit card. And later today, Friday, the, the 7th, as we're speaking, later today, the U.S. is going to report that another, it's going to get the August consumer credit numbers. And we're, we're talking about um, a monthly increase, another monthly increase of about $25 billion. Next week, we get retail sales, and that could be one of those indications of how the U.S. consumer is being squeezed. And so there we're, we're looking at, like, it's been a, retail sales have been soft lately, to your point. Uh, last month, they were up three-tenths of a percent. Excuse me, in August, they were up three-tenths of a percent. In September, they're expected to rise about 0.2, but we already know that a good chunk of that's going to be autos. To exclude autos, you're looking at a contraction, a fall in retail sales. Well, I know. I've, I've gone to a couple of the malls here just on the weekends. And, I, you know, just talking to the people in the stores, I mean, it, it's worrisome. I mean, the traffic has fallen off. And, I mean, uh, where are we seeing discounting ahead of the Christmas season already? And I can remember, Mark, and maybe you could, is, you know, leading up to Christmas, during the Christmas season, you paid full price. Maybe if you're a little smarter, you waited to after Christmas when whatever didn't move, they tried to push it out the door on sale. Now, to get you in the door before Christmas, they're marking stuff down. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. This is, a, this is a very tough time for households. I mean, uh, household formations as well as households. But maybe one thing that... Uh, trying to look at the glass as half full is that, you know, we did contract in the first two quarters of the year, but here in Q3, 
uh, it looks like the U.S. economy expanded two to maybe two and a half percent annualized rate. That might be the best we have for a while, but it does look like so. My, my sense is it, things are bad and they're going to get worse. And what's happened in the Q3, sort of over the over the summer, is a uh, is nice, but it's not going to be sustained. I, I still think that uh, we could. Uh, we're looking at a recession. I think uh, like a bona fide recession, Q2, Q3 next year, something along those lines. So, given what you see right now, I see oil prices at a hundred dollars a barrel. I, I see interest rates continuing to go up, unemployment to go up. And like you, I think we're going to, you know, they're going to crash land the airplane. Uh, this nonsense about a soft landing. Mark, you and I have been in the business long enough. And, you know, the only soft landing I ever saw was 94. Yeah, I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. I think that uh, for, for me, the question now really becomes uh, how long of a downturn and and how deep it is. And you, you, usually I'm short and shallow. Uh, but because uh, uh, th- but this this downturn is a bit different than other downturns. One, it's an economic downturn, less of a financial downturn. Uh, though the economic downturn could turn into a financial downturn, like you say, in the corporate credit market and other. You know, there's so many different ways that people benefit from low interest rates. That's only when interest rates rise do we see what how they how they game the system. And that's partly the story of those pension funds in the UK that spurred the Bank of England to intervene. So I think the same thing true in the U.S. As interest rates rise, we'll see some of these some of these ways people tried to like uh, square the circle, like the uh, buy now pay later type schemes. So I, I I'm concerned about this, but to me, if the question now is, I, I sort of take for granted that we're gonna we're gonna have a downturn, and truly, really, do we have the wherewithal to get us out of it? And I'm not sure we have the fiscal. I mean, especially given the political cycle, where we'll be say middle of next year, uh, late next year, do we have the uh, the political leadership uh, on the fiscal side and how much inflation can come down for the for the Federal Reserve to feel comfortable cutting rates. The market still has a small chance of a cut late next year. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. But I, I would say right now uh, we love energy and we like defensive plays in this kind of market. Mark, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow you, tell them how they could do so and also mention your book. Sure, thanks. Uh, so I, I keep a blog. So I work for a bank, and uh, my employer uh, uh, lets me post it on a blog called Mark to Market. Uh, it really comes to Mark to Market instead of trying to be a marketing device, of course. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at uh, Mark Making Sense, which is really for my first book called Making Sense of the Dollar. I, I have a second book called Political Economy of Tomorrow, and that is that sort of takes a look at uh, I, I sort of it's a retelling of it. The Midas story, you know, when that old myth about King Midas, uh, everything he touched turned to gold and he ended up choking on it. And I think that's in some ways what we have in our society now where uh, where we have too much, really, uh, of things, of capital in the wrong hands, of course. And I think that this is why even today there's one point seven trillion dollars of negative yielding bonds. So maybe on top of like uh, uh, the sectors you pointed out, maybe I could, could throw out this idea for you as well. And it's really for retail, not institutions. And the retail idea is this. Inflation looks like it's going to stay elevated. And the government, the Treasury Department, sells inflation-linked bonds to households directly. And it's called an I-bond. And you could you know, use the internet, search for it, I-bond, and you'll find that the government 
You buy the bond from the government, directly from the Treasury. It pays. It's an inflation-linked bond. It pays over 9%. It gets reset in a month or so based on inflation. And I'm suggesting to you that inflation is going to stay high. So maybe it'll be cut from 9% to the high 8%. 8%, 9%, practically risk-free from the U.S. government. The rub on it is that uh, households, you can only invest 10,000 U.S. dollars per person per year. But there is a bill in Congress uh, that wants to raise that limit to $30,000. To me, this is, I mean, given the volatility of the stock market, given the great uncertainty with these shocks, whether it's uh, the COVID recovery, whether it's Russia invasion of of Ukraine, whether it's the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, pushing down asset prices, including stocks. I kind of think this is a, a safe way, a safe place to park money and get a decent yield practically risk-free because it's underwritten by the U.S. government. Couldn't agree more. Well, listen, Mark, as always, a pleasure having you on the program. You have a great rest of the year, and we hope to talk to you again. Thanks, Jim. Good luck to everybody. We have this huge race to electrification of the transportation system, the move away from fossil fuel-powered vehicles, the EVs run on batteries, and just for a $0.30 penetration rate of electric vehicles. The world's copper miner must double the amount of global production from the current 21 million tons annually to 40 million tons. Where is the mining industry going to supply the raw materials required for just Tesla's EVs? To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals, give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, a lot of you are probably thinking, what's going to happen to the precious metals market, especially since we're seeing central banks such as Central Bank of England pivot? We've seen a bounce back here, and will that be coming here? In other words, will the Fed continue raising interest rates, or is there a risk that the Fed will have to hold off and maybe pivot. Let's find out what's going to happen in the metals market. Joining me on the program is Bob Coleman of Idaho Armored Vaults. You know, Bob, I think if I was to tell listeners the number one performing asset since 2000 is gold, they would be shocked because you would think of the stock market. But if you think of where gold prices were in 2000 at 250 and where they were in March at a little over 2000, as some of the best returns that we've seen in any asset class. But one I want to talk about particular today, we've seen gold surpass its old highs, but silver has had difficulty taking out the old highs. So I want to take, get your take on silver here, and then I want to talk about the COMEX warehouses. 
Yeah, on the, on the on silver, basically, you can break up uh, about sixty to seventy percent of the usage in silver or demand for silver is industrial. So, and that's fairly consistent year in year out. It's the the outlier that that really affects the price is the investment side, uh, because that that you know, some years it can become really popular and investment just. Uh, overwhelms the market, and in other years, uh, you, you may see net sellers or just very small buying that goes on. So, it's it's the investment side that tends to be that outlier. Um, you know, the and if you look at on the production side, uh, about seventy percent of the metal of silver that's mined is actually mined as byproducts from other main sources of mining, whether it's gold, zinc, copper lead that type of thing so only about 30 percent of the silver actually mined each year is from primary silver producers and if you take that a next level you look at the basically the cost of production out of those primary silver producers they're about 20 dollars an ounce 20 21 dollars an ounce uh for the for for a silver producer to basically make money uh mining silver on a primary uh basis so if you if if um uh, when you take all that into consideration, you start to build sort of a cost of, uh, you know, typically where, where commodities tend to bottom is toward their cost of production. Uh, because once it starts going below that, obviously they're going to start uh, uh, halting production or slowing down, uh, you know, especially lower grade ore projects, that type of thing. And we've started to see that with, with gold, or sorry, with silver, with uh, the price pulling back, with copper, uh, uh, you know, you've seen copper projects being shelved because copper prices coming down this year. That's actually having a a, a wider impact on silver uh, going forward uh, because of that dominance of uh, being a byproduct of other metals. Well, a comment, if you would, because I've seen base metals, everything from zinc, copper, iron, or all of these metals over the last couple of decades are up a couple hundred percent. Why has that not happened to silver? Because Bob, and I'll, this is probably a follow-up question. If I go to Kitco and want to buy a Silver Eagle, I'm going to pay over an 80% premium. So number one, why has silver lagged all the other base metals? And it's never, I mean, if you take a look at silver at $50 in 1980, if you adjust that for inflation, it should be closer to 100 yeah, and if you if you look at silver, basically how relative performance wise to the S and P, silver is cheaper now than where silver was in 1971. In fact, relative to the S and P 500, and if you look at the performance of the S and P 500 at its highs uh, earlier this year, uh, silver would have to be at about sixty five dollars an ounce um, to. As well, you know, if you, if you compare that also to gold at its highs, that's where silver would have to be in terms of relative performance, um, you know, to, to measure that same performance level from 1971. Silver is an interesting metal. It's a small market. Uh, it's heavily uh, influenced by the hedging market. Uh, what we tend to look at, and not to get too complicated in paper versus physical, paper investing is traditionally ETFs and you know, the futures markets and that type of thing, whereas the physical is what you typically see more in London, um, uh, where mines uh, pull it out of the ground, they, they, they sell that. Uh, that ore and metal to refiners or to bullion banks, whatever it may be. Um, and that's more done on a physical basis. 
where what impacts silver is a couple different things. When you when you have silver being pulled out of the ground and, and then sent all the way through its uh, lifespan through uh, from the miner to the refiner or the smelter to to a fabricator to a wholesaler to a retail dealer to an investor as it travels through that that lifespan it's very common to see that party whoever holds that silver temporarily until they sell it they hedge the price and as they hedge the price they typically will go on to the comex for example uh, which is a futures market and that and that Comex market was designed to be a hedging market. It's a by nature, it's a seller's market, and and that oddly enough is sometimes the price we always see uh, for the or we we correspond to with the price of silver. But yet it's it's also a very dominant uh, price setting factor. Uh, for the metal itself, even though it's a derivative market. I mean, when you sell a futures contract, it's not only 2% of those transactions on a yearly basis ever stand for delivery or provide delivery. Most people are just speculating or just trading the price action. But what happens is that tends to be a suppressive effect on silver because that's one ounce of silver may be hedged five different times by five different counterparties as it travels through its lifespan. And then you take into account Wall Street's um, impact creating silver ETFs, uh, other types of silver products, uh, electronic traded electronic traded products, electronic trade notes, structured notes, that type of thing. That Those products actually act as a sponge that would normally soak up money that would tend to be buying metal, physical metal, it actually goes into these structured products that are just paper products. A lot of them uh, don't have any uh, effect on silver whatsoever. In fact, they don't even hold silver. They're just uh, they're leveraged products, leveraged vehicles. That uh, you know, SLV is one that's very popular, but but SLV uh, is a little bit more complicated than what you see uh, on the surface. Even though it buys silver, it's run by the authorized participants in London, and that market is extremely opaque. You don't really know. The, there's no regulatory oversight and transparency on the actions of those authorized participants and how they interact with with not only the silver ETF but also with uh, the hedging vehicles and the other counterparties, market makers, and so forth that influence the overall silver price. Um, uh, so, it, it, silver is a complex market, even though it's a very simple metal. You know, the thing that really strikes me, though, Bob, if you take a look at the COMEX the inventory levels that are available for delivery, and I, I wonder if you'd explain that for our listeners, are dropping precipitously. And I was always told by Dave Morgan, whenever you get down to around 35 million on the COMEX, you're headed for trouble or a squeeze. And we're not too far away from that. I think, what are we around 40, 41 million right now? Because it's been coming off the COMEX. People are taking delivery. Yeah, what's what's actually happening um, prior to uh, COVID, March 2020, um, we were about 90 million, 95 million ounces on the registered category. For your listeners that may not understand, there is two categories on the COMEX uh, that that define the inventories um, held by depositories. One is registered, which is metal that's held on receipt uh, that that are that uh, is attached with a warrant. That the futures con that represents the metal in the futures contracts, uh, and then there's the eligible category, which is metal that's actually 
it, it meets all the defining characteristics to be put on receipt, but it's actually held in a private account. So they, the, the COMEX reports both these numbers um, because it's metal that on the eligible side could come onto the market if it wanted to do so. So to, to back that out, so when you look at March of 2020, all of a sudden sort of the precious metals world changed all of a sudden. And you had initially about uh, 50 million ounces more come onto the market. So we were at about 150 million ounces in the registered category in March or, or in 2020 when it hit its high. And what was happening then was you had logistics failures and complications and so forth and slowdowns. A lot of metal came onto the exchange uh, to take advantage of our, our uh, arbitrage opportunities, um, uh, collateralization and financialization uh, was well, much easier at the time uh, than to try and send it through London because you had mines slowing down and, and, and shutting down and you, you know, it was just tough to move metal around. Plus, uh, the, the banks were sort of in a little bit of a disarray with, with volatility in the financial markets. So it was easier just to move metal onto the exchange and then collateralize your, your metal or your futures contracts that way. Well, since when we hit 150 million, all of a sudden the demand obviously was picking up in the precious metals market. You know, individual investors were saying, hey, listen, the Fed's printing money. We got to go out and buy metal. Uh, and so you started to see metal being drawn from the COMEX. And that metal that was being drawn from the COMEX wasn't always investors. It was fabricators. It was the U.S. Mint. Through its uh, through its uh, vendors that were taking delivery off the COMEX, uh, breaking receipts and then delivering that metal to the refiner to make blanks with, for example, it, it was uh, metal that was going to refiners around the world to make a smaller bar product because uh, the metal uh, investor demand was was picking up not only in thousand ounce bars but it was also picking up in coins and smaller bars that type of thing, uh, as well as industrial use was picking back up as well because you know we've been coming out of this covid sort of crisis um well now you've getting to a point where the metal is continually being drained and that's that continual drain I mean, you're talking a million ounces you, know, you just had another 957,000 ounces today come off the comex so you're now off the registered category so now you're at 40,155,000 ounces left What's happening is that metal that's being drained is metal going to fabrication. It's metal going to India. India has been a huge buyer of metal the last couple of months. Uh, in fact, in August, they took 1,800 metric tons off of the market, which is about 54 million ounces uh, alone. Um, and, and, and you have metal, you, know, you have sourcing issues, mining companies, you know, the summer tends to be a little bit softer uh, in terms of supply. And so uh, you've had refiners all the way from Europe that were taking metal off the COMEX, shipping it back over to Europe uh, to make product with. That's how tight the market is. Um, and, and what's odd, and then you say, well, God, you have all this demand that's going on. How can the price drop? Well, that's where Wall Street comes in. And so what's happened since the spring, when inflation was was really picking up, a lot of CTAs, commodity trading advisors, hedge funds, and so forth, saw the playbook of the Fed saying, "Hey, listen, we're going to start raising rates. We're going to tighten liquidity. We're going to we're going to try and you know uh, influence de uh, some demand destruction in the markets to try and cool inflation down." So they started shorting on paper 
uh, the gold and silver market, for example. Let's just take silver, for example. This is a good uh, to kind of walk you through this. So basically, June, uh, uh, all of a sudden, you had something very strange happen. The, the funds continued to sell uh, or short the silver on paper. And all of a sudden, the futures price, uh, uh, say three months forward, became less in price than the current spot price. And the spot price was actually more expensive than the three month forward uh, uh, or lead month futures contract. And sometimes you get that from time to time. What started to happen was there was so much paper selling from June to August and even into September that the the silver market went into a backwardation, meaning backwardation means when the futures price lead month contract, for example, is cheaper or than the actual uh, uh, spot market. Um, that had never I – I don't think I've ever seen it three months straight in a row of being in backwardation. And what that caused was – uh, because of that artificial paper selling, it 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 lifted lease rates up, it lifted financing costs up. Uh, uh, as the Fed is raising rates and so forth, naturally financing costs will go up. But because you had all this pressure to borrow metal uh, uh, and short it into the market, um, it was it was forcing lease rates up. So therefore hedge funds and so forth that were long the market started to close out their leases and return the metal back to refiners or bullion banks. And that, that, that created even more pressure on the market. Um, and, and so that's what ended up pressing the price lower. And then something odd happened in August. You had SLV, which is the big silver ETF, started to go you started to see short interest growing rather rapidly in the in that ETF and, and in fact in September it got to a point where the stock to borrow uh I'm sorry the borrowing fee for for SLV uh shot up from 0.2% to 7% annually to borrow stock and you could barely find any stock to borrow uh it was being shorted so much and you had about at one point over 60 million shares short of SLV when there's only about 500 or so 520 million shares outstanding. So about 13%, uh, 11 to 13% of the entire uh, shares outstanding was actually short. Well, I started writing about this on uh, my Twitter feed, explaining this entire process that was unfolding and saying, hey, listen, we're setting up for a short squeeze here because the market is getting too depressed. It's getting too negative. Um, and it's impacting not only the, the, the you know on the on the futures markets and and so, and so forth, but it's also affecting the, the physical market because the demand as lower the, the price goes, you know people uh, like you and I that have an affinity towards silver that are buying it, um, uh, and clients are buying it, individual investors are buying it. We're buying more and more of it as the price is dropping because we see this as you know, the inflation is still here. Uh, you still have the problems with, like you mentioned earlier, with the potential of a pivot at some point when something does break and you're seeing things break over in Europe, for example. Well, as a long-term investor, the physical investor is saying, I don't really care what happens in six weeks. It's really the next six years is what I'm worried about. And so that, that physical buying has become a base for this market to build from uh, while the while Wall Street is heavily short at the same time. And so you have this real tug of war at the moment. Yeah, because, and, and I wonder if you might explain, because I see the the opportunity in silver that I saw in 2003 or oil in 2020. In fact, silver is my second biggest investment, both physical and the companies. But explain for our listeners why 
you can see the price of 19 bucks or it's 21 bucks plus now. And you go to somebody like a Kitco and you're going to pay an 80% premium. Explain that. Well, the, the products right now, the retail products, uh, the coin market is in a little bit of a disarray. It's, it's extremely tight right now. And there's a couple of reasons for it. The U.S. Mint has had a very difficult time making blanks. Uh, these are the, the round blanks before they press them uh, into the coins, um, getting enough blanks made uh, to meet uh, the, the demand out that's out there. To give you an idea, there's about half as many Silver Eagles made today than there was back 10 years ago. That's that's and at the same time, you have demand that is that's willing to buy silver and really physical silver at any price. So, so that lack of production is creating this artificially high premium right now. And, and, and the, and the wholesale and retail market is capitalizing on that with, with this idea that they have purchasing or pricing power in the market, because there's only so many coins available. They're willing to uh, mark up their product. I kind of look at it as, you know, guys that are selling ice after the hurricane. It's very similar in the industry right now where they're they're selling, they're trying to find the ultimate price to sell that product at uh, and and then get that highest premium uh, for it. And it's un, it's unfortunate, but it's just also a, a symptom of the industry because uh, you, you haven't had a lot of refiners being built out uh, to make more product. The U.S. Mint's searching for more uh vendors to make these blanks they can't find them uh and then you have on top of that when the queen passed away a few weeks ago the the coin market you took out the british britannia coin and the and the and the uh, canadian maple leaf coin which uses the queen's effigy on the coin there was a lot there was a lot of concern of well when is the king going to be put onto that coin and the coins that were made so far for 2023, which start to get distributed in, in October, November, will those coins actually be melted down and be remade with, with the king on it? So you've taken two major products out of the market temporarily here. And, and so you don't have very many other major sovereign players making sovereign coins uh, that have a lot of availability. So that it's caused a big, squeeze or tightness for for coin product right now um uh, and so so that's that's what's impacting the premiums you can still go to thousand ounce bars we, for example we sell thousand ounce bars for clients at 90 cents over spot we have 100 ounce silver bars pamp swiss bars we're selling for two dollars and 50 cents over spot uh, uh you know so you can still get some very good deals and, and products you, you just Coins right now are something to stay away from until the 2023 years uh, start to be made and, and actually distributed. And then I think you'll see some of these premiums start to relax a bit. You know, I, I just can't help but look at this. And one of the things that really strikes me about silver, and this gets back to what we talked about originally, 70% of the demand for silver is industrial, but 70% of the production of silver is a byproduct. So if other producers start curbing back because they think they're a recession, whether it's a copper producer or a gold producer, that also cuts. But I just take a look at what the, the Wall Street crowd has done in terms of the paper shorts. And it, you, you take a look at the size of those paper shorts to the amount that's available for delivery. I can't help but see that we're close to a short squeeze here. 
Oh, completely. It overwhelms the 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 amount of activity. I, I spoke at the Silver Symposium uh, a few weeks ago, and one of the um, statistics that was used was. Uh, there was a four-hour time span back in January 2021 that took four hours of trading uh, on the COMEX uh, 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 for the Silver Futures, and there was about 350 to 550 million paper ounces traded in that three- to four-hour time frame on, two, on a couple different days. That's a third to a half of the entire year's production in silver traded in four hours. It's absolutely mind-blowing how impactful the paper markets have and how much influence that has on the physical market. And the problem you run into, the reason why the paper markets have such great influence is the institutions flock to these paper investments. They don't actually go after the physical market. If they actually realized how small this market was, uh, they would have a dominant impact in the physical metal itself would have more dominant pricing impact uh, on the market. You know, To give you an idea, 40 million ounces left in the registered category right now. We could take all 40 million ounces and put it in our depository uh, without increasing the space of our depository one inch. I mean, that's how small this market is. It, it, do, it doesn't take a lot to have an impact. And, and you're, you're talking $800 million worth of money uh, to, to basically take all that silver you know, off, the, off, the, off the COMEX on the registered category. Yes, more metal could come onto the market, uh, but it just shows you how small the market is. And then if you look at London, for example, the, the the London market has been seeing a massive drain of, of metal. You've had uh, 200 million ounces uh, come off the London market uh, just in the last four or five months. Um, and again, with India just in the month of August alone requesting 54 million ounces, I've been told that they've had another stellar month in September as well. I mean – the, the the market, the metals market, the physical market is a global market, and it's it's unfortunate it's dominated by paper price action, but that's where I'm trying to educate uh, investors, high net worth investors, institutions. That's typically our client base, but it, under and just trying to educate them that says, listen, it's cheaper for you just to buy thousand ounce silver bars to then get involved in all these structured products and vehicles that are run by Wall Street. And, and not only that, when you get into the physical metal, you reduce counterparty risk, you reduce systemic risk. I mean, there's so many advantages to actually having the physical metal, and it's an extremely liquid market that trades 24 hours a day. Yeah, I just don't trust paper silver because, as you mentioned, uh, it's so opaque. You don't know if they actually own the stuff, and uh, you know, or, or they've either loaned it out or leased it out or something like that to make some extra money. That's why I like owning the physical and, and buying it in larger quantities because I haven't touched uh, the coin market in over a year because of these huge premiums. I mean, why would you want to pay 80% over spot to own a sovereign? I completely agree. And from especially from uh, a fiduciary or an advisory standpoint uh, that, that both of us are, are in that business, um, you want to do what's right for the client as well. It, it would be very difficult for someone to break even if they have to make an 80% return before they can make any money in their investment. I mean, that's, that's unreal. 
Um, and so it, it is, a, you know, it, it, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on here because it really drives home the, the point where you have to really learn about the, the investment you're getting involved with, become more educated, uh, you know, definitely you know, read uh, and, and try to understand the agreements. There's a lot of, lot of structured programs out there, uh, a lot of ways to store metals and so forth. And, and so you know, one of the things I try to help people with is uh, – is try to educate them into when you uh, get involved with a structured program, what are the program's responsibilities and liabilities uh, to you as a client? And so, yeah, you're right. Actually understanding the entire paper contract, I guess you could say, uh, is vital to your, your financial health. Yeah, I just don't trust paper products. We learned that the hard lesson in the 00 decade with the financial crisis, with credit default swaps, and these mortgages that were being sold to the public. And so the fact that Wall Street's involved here, I mean, I like the bars, the 100 ounce bars and the 1000 ounce bars. And especially like, as you said, uh, you can get those at a small premium compared to the rest of the market. But the other thing I, I, uh, I wanna close with, because I see a massive silver short, uh, short squeeze coming here. And uh, it, you just, the shorts are so large in compared to what's available. And I, I remember I learned this from Dave Morgan a long time ago. Whenever you get down below 40, I mean, we're at 40 now. You get down to 35, game over. It's, it's the squeeze hits. And I wonder if you explain, this happened, I think, last year. Correct me, Bob. The Reddit traders came in and they saw the same possibility in a short squeeze. And they drove the price of silver up to 28, 29 and then it pulled back. What happened there? Well, it, it was interesting. It, the, the 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 move originally came in silver or in the silver ETF. You had a big buyer come in uh, and jam the premium up on the NAV to over five and a half percent, and and that got a lot of people watching the markets. Got them very interested, especially after the era of GameStop and so forth. So all of a sudden, the industry jumped all over that and you started to see sort of a frenzy develop um what what the, the unfortunate thing that happened in that silver squeeze movement was the really the, the players that got squeezed were really the consumer because premiums went right through the roof um uh, and it was a way for the industry to sort of take advantage of of the consumer base and it, it was unfortunate i i was documenting it the, uh, the entire move where you would have sort of this idea that, uh, the, the, you know, that their silver was in short supply and you had to buy it right away. Uh, it, it was unfortunate that that happened. Um, but it, what we're seeing set up now is not necessarily a retail product frenzy. You're seeing a thousand ounce bar uh, situation uh, where thousand ounce bars are sort of the Achilles heel of the entire industry. Uh, it's, it's used by, uh, uh, industry. It's used by fabricators. It's used by uh, 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 ETFs. It's it's you know as well as investors, um, and so it's a very common product. And it's the only it's the bar that's used to actually settle trades on the COMEX itself. So if you see if you start to you're you're seeing that slow motion train wreck develop here, and it's continually being pressed because as like you said, coin premiums are so high. People are naturally gravitating to thousand ounce bars. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense. You can get 40, 50, 60% more metal for your money just by going to a bar. And at the same point, at the same time, it's silver. 
you're going to represent your your uh, uh, or have it direct exposure in the metal itself. It may not be the product of choice, but at least you can get a very good deal on it. And and you know if it if silver doubles in price, uh, you're not just breaking even at that point. So uh, yeah, and that's what we're seeing. You're seeing the market broaden here, um, and as the as the Paper markets continue to press lower, thinking the Fed's going to continue to hike and raise rates, and and that's going to have an impact on demand destruction. The the physical market is seeing just the opposite. Well, I tell you, it's the second biggest investment I'm making right now is silver next to oil. So, Bob, if as we close, uh, you and I agree, I, I I think a massive short squeeze is coming here. You 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 just can't have this happen. And as you mentioned, as people look at the coin market and they're paying 80% premiums, they're gravitating towards a thousand ounce bars and hundred ounce bars like I am, because you can save a lot of money. And, but we're, we're taking delivery because I don't trust paper. Yeah. And, and, and for full disclosure, I, I also run a hedge fund, a physical metals fund uh, that's 99% invested in physical metal. And I'm I'm 70% weighted towards silver and 30% weighted to gold, roughly. So just as as full disclosure. So I, I agree with you. I think the silver market offers a lot of promise, not just from a monetary perspective, but you have that combination of, of a consistent uh, industry demand. And as you know, car technologies become more prevalent in the marketplace, um, electric cars and so forth, automobiles are using more silver, solar panels, are, you know, which have been growing with this ESG movement um you're seeing more demand there uh it it and as the investors start to become more aware of like you mentioned earlier the the, the fiasco with uh central bank uh uh printing of money expanding the balance sheets and then obviously uh coming back to the market you know if something breaks they have to try and fix it or basically paper over it it's it's developing this crisis of confidence that's i think going to unfold over the next couple of years uh that's going to send silver soaring yeah that's one thing uh, i would just end on as we just mentioned it is so, i mean 800 million and you could buy the last remaining ounces on the comex that's how small this market is and why when silver takes off it takes off like a nasa space launch because it's a very, very small market, not a lot of product available. And you start getting investment money coming in on top of the industrial side. This thing, you know, I mean, it's it once again, it, it's it's like a space launch. And I see that coming. Bob, as we close, if our listeners would like to find out more about Idaho Armored Vaults, how could they do so? Yeah, we have a website. Uh, it's goldsilvervault.com. Uh, where we do uh, depository storage. We're one of the largest private depositories in the country. Um, uh, we're not owned by a gold dealer, uh, financial institution. We we're, we're, uh, provide very private-oriented type insured storage. Um, and then we also have a – I also uh, buy and sell metals as well. So I can, I can provide uh, various different topics of information for clients uh, as well as uh, you know, managing money uh, as well. So in terms of trying to explain people the, the plumbing of the markets, uh, plumbing of the, the, the physical markets, how the industry works and that type of thing, I get into that. And then they can also follow me on Twitter. Profits Plus ID is my uh, Twitter uh, account. 
P-R-O-F-I-T-S, P-L-U-S-I-D, as in Idaho. Uh, as I put out a lot of information uh, you know, daily regarding the precious metals markets as well. All right. Well, listen, Bob, thanks for coming on the program. Once again, I think you both, both you and I see a major short squeeze coming here because when any time you overload and make the bet on one side, which is what Wall Street has done, that usually tells tells you something's about ready to flip. And I just feel it. Uh, and especially as I see the COMEX inventories drop almost every week and almost every day. So listen, thanks for coming on the program. We appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. The North Korean economy is almost entirely based on its relationship with China. And the Russians have been talking to the North Koreans about supplying more energy supply, for example, using more North Korean labor, basically supplying hard currency to North Korea in return for personnel. And then, of course, the Chinese have reopened up trade in goods. The the border train is back running um, along the Chinese-North Korean border. So there is a lot of coordination and cooperation. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Welcome, everyone, to this week's Big Picture. Today, we're going to discuss the coming oil shock, the silver short squeeze, and the commodity bull market. And Jim, I want to harken back to an article that you wrote in early 2020, talking about how we were going to go from an energy glut that we were facing back then due to the global lockdowns over COVID to an energy crisis in the years ahead. And one of the things that you had pointed out at the time was not only we were seeing a major shutdown of production, which would come to bite us, but also the fact that OPEC nations were unable to meet their quotas and they were constantly producing below what they were supposed to meet with their targets. And of course, we just saw that with OPEC now saying again that they're going to cut production But as you've been pointing out, they just physically don't have the ability to meet these high targets. So let's start there and talk about this coming oil shock that obviously we see in Europe underway right now, but which you believe is also on its way to America's shores as well. Yeah, I think, Chris, we're going back over $100 a barrel. And part of that, you know, the big news this week is OPEC cut production by 2 million barrels a day. And they're saying, well, we need to increase our capacity should we have shortfalls. So Saudi Arabia wants to do that. But here's the real truth. OPEC production has been falling since January of 2021. And right now, there are about three, the figures vary, but it's about 3.5 to 3.6 million barrels a day short of where their production should be. So really by cutting production by 2 million barrels, they're not, they're not producing the 3.6 million barrels that they need to meet their targets. So this is kind of just 
coming in line with what they're actually doing and producing. So output has been falling steadily. And of course, we've talked about this during the summer when uh, the G7 were meeting, and that was when President Biden was planning on going to Saudi Arabia to convince them to produce more. Well, nothing came of it because they simply, as Macron said, hey, they can't produce more. They just don't have that capability. And so that is something I think we're grappling with. And I think a lot of these world leaders and the administration still don't realize they don't have the capacity to produce as much as the world needs. Because one of the things that we're finding is oil demand is inelastic. I was at a car dealership yesterday uh, talking to the dealers, and this was a you know German imports. Germany is falling short of getting cars. A lot of the dealers, I don't care if you're going to Lexus dealer, you're going to Mercedes, Porsche, Audi, doesn't matter. The cars just aren't there because they're not able to produce because of the energy shortages that we're seeing in Europe. So the cut this week, the big news in the market uh, on the day we're talking about, we're talking about over $90 oil. Chris, I think we're going over to $100 oil, and that's going to be soon. And the the real problem that we have here, it's not just that we're not able to produce enough oil, but we lost a lot of our refineries that were shut down during COVID. They haven't come back. So if you look at refinery utilization rates are over 90%. And I don't know what it is uh, when you're listening to the show, wherever you live. Here in California, uh, we're over $7 in gasoline. In fact, I just paid, I think it was $17.17. And it's first time, Chris, that I've had to pay over $100 to fill my tank. There's places in California where they're paying over $8, and I know nationally now we're approaching the $5 level. Now, you know, the administration is attacking the oil companies, and they're saying they're shutting down refineries. Well, you know, guys, shutting down refineries in different cycles of energy is a natural part of the business. For example, right around March and April, refineries change over to gasoline because they're going to need to pump out more gasoline for the summer driving season. Pretty soon, uh, refineries are shutting down for routine maintenance. They'll be switching over to winter heating uh, oil. So that is a natural part of the refinery business. The problem is we don't have enough refiners and we don't have enough oil. So you add the two together, and it's why we're staring at you know, 7 and $8 oil in California, and we're looking at probably $5 nationally. I think I saw the figure. It's like four ninety-seven or something like that nationally today. So we have not invested in this sector. And unfortunately, uh, we're not investing. I mean, companies don't have the incentive. They're being demonized. You know, you have oil. You have to continually explore for new oil, because oil is coming out the front door. What are you going to do to replace the oil you just produced? You have to go out and explore and spend more money. Companies don't have the incentive to do that. And so this is one reason why we've got this clash. And, you know, thank goodness you live in the U.S. where the price of energy is much cheaper. I mean, picture the poor souls that live in Europe and elsewhere, where not only are they paying higher prices for oil, but because 
oil is denominated in dollars, they're paying even more because the dollar's strength has been rising as the Fed continues to jump interest rates in three-quarter increments with today's unemployment report uh, dropping to three and a half, even though the participation dropped. Now the probability of another three-quarters of a rate hike in November has gone up over 70%. So you've got that going on. And then you've got, uh, it's estimated that they'll probably raise by 50 basis points in December. So we could be looking at a Fed funds rate at 4.5%. And you got to understand the implication of that. We were looking at a zero Fed funds rate at the beginning of the year to go from zero to four and a half, folks, you, you have no idea. This is one of the worst bond market returns that we've seen. And you would probably have to go back to 1974 to see things as bad as they are this year. It's, you know, commodities been hit. The stock market's been hit. The bond market has been hit. So if you were in a 60-40 portfolio, 60% equities, 40% in bonds, typically when you get into a downturn like we did in, let's say, 2007 and 2008, your stocks went down 60%, but your bond portfolio went up double digits. So it helped to cushion the blow of what you were losing in stocks. You were making money in bonds. This year, you've, you've lost, what, 20 25% in bond markets, probably one of the worst bond markets that we have seen in almost half a century. That's how bad it is. So when it comes to this coming oil shock, which is now clearly already underway in Europe right now, and I should add that what we've discussed in the past is that the Russia-Ukraine war is not the cause of their problems, but merely a symptom of spending over a decade shutting down their own fossil fuel and nuclear energy, making themselves critically dependent on Russia. Obviously, Putin was only happy to be their only source or one of their main sources of fossil fuels. And when push came to shove, obviously he's using this as leverage in the current war. But that's not the cause. That is a symptom again. And we shouldn't point at Europe. Uh, we're not pointing at Europe saying that they're stupid or that you know this is something unique because we've clearly done the same thing here in the U.S. with China when it comes to rare earths and strategic metals. China now controls and dominates the mining, refining, and processing of all sorts of different strategic metals that we need and that we are critically dependent upon them for. So we're doing the same thing here in the U.S., just with metals instead of oil. But again, when it comes to this oil shock that you warned about in early 2020, you were telling our investment team this week that you actually think things are going to get worse. What's the next stage here that you're looking at? Yeah, this cap on the pricing of Russian oil so uh, the EU embargo of Russian oil could remove another 2.4 million barrels a day off the market. So it's not just the fact that OPEC is not meeting its targets. They're cutting production. It's also what's going to happen with Russian oil. So this could get actually much worse. Now, let's talk about uh, some of the other things that are going on. And this was probably one of the original parts when I wrote my article, like, I think it was April 2020, I said, from oil glut to oil shock. And what I was watching was this drop, dramatic drop in investment that we've seen over the years 
by the industry itself. And that began in 2014 with the Saudi oil wars, where they pumped as much oil out there. They thought they were going to drive American shale producers out of business. It backfired. But what it did is it brought the price of oil down from triple digits down to double digits. And in fact, at one point during COVID, during the lockdowns, we actually got to negative rates. And so on top of that, we, we've had falling prices. So the industry was not incentivized to go out and spend a whole bunch of money. In fact, uh, even some of the big oil companies like Exxon and some of the others were actually losing tens of billions of dollars in 2020. And their, their profitability just fell off a cliff during the, the last decade because of the drop in oil prices. Meanwhile, the cost of finding oil was going up. Then you have the administration, the new administration coming in, and basically they've declared war on the fossil fuel industry. One of the first things I think Biden did his first day in office was cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Well, that just removed the, uh, a million barrels a day of Canadian oil that could be coming into this country. And so that was the first issue, the lack of permits. Uh, they haven't been uh, getting leases. They, they're not granting permits and they're shutting down pipelines. It's not just the Keystone. They're talking about shutting down other pipelines. And so right now, if we take a look at domestic production is down by over one million barrels a day. We're not getting a million barrels from Canada. And the only way that we've been masking this shortfall is we've been draining. We've drained almost 200 million barrels from the SPR, and that's going to stop after the election. So this was done to try to keep prices down, but it's backfiring uh, because of all the things that we talked about. ESG, we're talking about the Russian uh, ban from Europe that's coming up. We're talking about Saudi Arabia falling short and OPEC falling short of meeting that. So you put all of this together and we've got almost the making of a perfect storm in energy. And it's uh, you, you take a look at Europe. And here's something I just want to warn you, folks. Get used to a very expensive winter. Because right now, the gas differentials between the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we're paying close to 8 bucks. And uh, Europe, they're paying close to 48 bucks. In Asia, they're paying close to 40. And what's happening is the U.S., a lot of the uh, American oil companies have liquefied natural gas. And we're shipping natural gas to Europe to help them out because of the, the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. And plus Russia cutting off Europe from natural gas as a weapon. So Europe is in a difficult strait that they're finding themselves. And I, I wrote an article about this, and we're going to put it up on the site that just talked about the desperation that they find themselves in, where they don't have, they're actually, Chris, like in Germany, they shut down their nuclear power plants. Now they're restarting their coal-fired plants. So, you know, it was great for Europe for a period of time, but the reason Europe did well is they were able to get cheap energy in the form of oil and natural gas. That is no longer the case. That began to change in 2021. It's gotten worse. 
in 2022 because of these policy decisions, it's going to get even more worse and desperate in 2023. So Europe desperately needs natural gas, and the U.S. is filling in that gap. Now, the Biden administration is talking about maybe prohibiting or stopping U.S. oil companies from shipping, let's say, liquefied natural gas to Europe to keep our prices down. But it's just going to make matters even worse for Europe. Europe could go into a very, very severe recession. So right now, if you take a look at this, the oil market is undersupplied and it's being masked by we are draining massive amounts of oil under the SPR to keep prices down uh, as part of policy. It's really, I guess, the reverse side effects of our policies to shut down or go after the fossil fuel industry. And I mean, you saw this, uh, I think I wrote about this in the article. It's not just that they're limiting permits and leases and shutting down pipelines, but just last week, we had all the heads of our major uh, U.S. banks from J.P. Morgan to you know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, were dragged before Congress. And I think it was Representative Tlaib said, are you, and she wanted a simple answer, yes or no, will you stop lending to the oil industry so that we do not produce any more oil? And I think it, it went viral. I think Jamie Dimon was the first person she asked from J.P. Morgan. He said, hell no, that would be the road to hell for the U.S. So it's not just that we're not giving them permits. We're shutting down pipelines. We're raising taxes. We're raising regulation. But also, we're trying to stop investing. A lot of the big companies like BlackRock and Vanguard, because the ESG policies are not investing in the sector. So the sector has been deprived by a lot of capital, and oil is a very energy is an intensive business. I don't care if you're looking at windmills, you're looking at solar, you're looking at nat gas, or you're looking at oil or coal. It is a capital intensive business. And if you deprive companies of capital, where are they going to get the money for the drills? Number one. Number two, you got to release public lands and grant permits to drill. Otherwise, how are you going to increase production? And as I mentioned earlier, U.S. production is down about a million barrels a day from its peak, roughly around 13 million barrels, which we hit just before COVID hit. And now we're somewhere around between 11 and 12 million barrels. So we are falling short of our production as well as OPEC is falling short of production. And then on top of that, we have fewer capacity to refine oil because we have fewer uh, refineries out there. A lot of them got shut down during the pandemic. And the other thing that you have is you have population growth. What When you have population growth, you have GDP growth. And so the upstream spending, whether it's uh, by national oil companies, the OPEC countries, or let's say Western oil companies not spending enough on exploration and development, at the same time, we still have population growth. You can't have economic growth without energy. It just doesn't work. And we're seeing that today in Germany. And we're seeing it. I was talking to, uh, as I mentioned, a car dealer yesterday. I was getting my car serviced. They can't get cars. And that's why you're seeing the markup on a lot of the used car market 
uh, used car price has been going up double digits a year because there's a shortage of cars, whether it's chips or it's the energy to produce these cars like we're seeing in Europe today. So all of this is coming together, as I say, to form that perfect storm in energy, lack of investment, regulation, undersupply, all of this is coming. And what we're finding is energy in the short term is very inelastic. So the only thing the Fed can do with what it's doing now is kill the economy. So if they shut down the economy, they put more workers out of work, which uh, is this faulty model the Fed relies on, which is the Phillip curve, that the lower the unemployment rate, the higher the wage inflation. It's a faulty model they use, but the Fed's goal is to get that unemployment rate back up over 5%. So they're talking about putting several more million Americans out and making it more expensive to do anything, which would reduce demand, and in the Fed's mind, therefore, inflation. The problem is you want to get inflation down. It's very, very simple. Stop spending money and start drilling. I mean, it's that simple. And one of the reasons that you're seeing the markets react the way it is, we just crossed over $31 trillion in debt. And I think we just added almost like three or four hundred billion more. So I think we're at three, three or three, four. And part of it is the Biden administration's five trillion dollars of additional spending. So that's driving the deficit up. Then on top of that, if you take a look at T-bills today, T-bills are close to four percent. Now, remember, last year, a 10 year Treasury note was under half a percent. T-bills were almost at zero. Today, Treasury bills are at close to 4%. So imagine what happens as the government has to finance this growing deficit. It is going to have to go in the market as these T-bills come due. Let's say they were paying one-tenth of a percent. Now they're paying 4%. So, Chris, by next year, we could be looking at almost a trillion dollars alone in interest costs for the federal government. That's how fast the deficit is growing. And there's nothing the Fed can do about that. So as it keeps raising interest rates, as it is doing now, it's just going to raise the cost for the government in terms of what it pays in interest, especially now. I think the deficit will be over a trillion. I think it was over a trillion for uh, 2022. We're in the new fiscal year of 2023. The government's fiscal year begins October 1st. And the budget deficit is getting even bigger. And part of that is these new spending programs, the $5 trillion I talked about that the Biden administration has pushed through. And on top of that, you have a jump in interest rates where we're now paying close to 4%. So we've got another storm coming to the economy. And the, the problem is we're relying more and more on foreign imports. I think the Biden administration is trying to work a deal with Venezuela. But Venezuela's oil industry is in tatters. It, it started with Chavez. He got rid of most of the oil workers, put in government cronies. Venezuelan oil production has been falling. It's lower quality. It, you know, oil, you just can't flip a switch like a factory and start producing more barrels of oil. It takes time. It takes money. So they're going to have to ramp up. So, Chris, we could be in this situation for probably the next two to three years of very high double, uh, triple-digit oil prices 
uh, because the only thing that will bring this down is a severe recession where you cut down demand very much in terms of what we saw during the pandemic, where you basically shut down the economy. People stayed home. They didn't drive. And we were locked in our homes with the lockdowns. And oil, I think oil dropped, I think, by 9 million barrels a day from consumption. So you add all of this up. And the things that are making it worse is we're talking about subsidies. So, for example, Newsom is going to hand out checks just before the election to help pay for gas. But his policies are driving the price of oil up. And that's why California has the highest gas prices in the country. In parts of California, we're paying over $8. California relies uh, on Saudi Arabian oil and OPEC oil to meet its shortfall because California oil production is down by 40%. So when you give somebody a subsidy to pay for something, you're not solving the supply issue. You're just making matters worse. And then on top of that, you throw increasing taxes. The EU is proposing a 33%. They call it temporary tax on oil companies. What do you think oil companies are going to do if you raise their taxes by another 33%? Do you think that they're going to have the incentive to go out, find more oil, spend more money, and produce more oil when you're going to penalize them with heavy taxation? It's not going to work. And that's why we're predicting we're going to see this differential that we have a natural gas. As I mentioned, we're paying about eight bucks here in the US, 40 bucks in Asia, and close to 50 in Europe. We could be paying 15 bucks here this winter. So just brace yourself, folks, if you're back east and relying on heating oil, uh, you could be, or natural gas, you're going to be paying more money. It's going to be a very expensive winter all the way around. Jim, let's pick up on a subject that you were talking about earlier with Bob Coleman on our show, and that's about how Comex Silver is flying out of the door. I know that you had uh, made some very strong bullish comments on how you are a, a pretty big investor in silver now. What is it you're seeing with silver in particular when it comes to inventories and what you think this means for the price action moving forward? Well, you take a look at the short position. The short position has been massive, as Bob talked about. You know, Beginning in June, when the Fed sort of alerted Wall Street saying, hey, no, <laughs> we're going to get aggressive with interest rates. And then they they raised interest rates three quarters of a point in June. They did it again in July. They did it again in September. Looks like they're going to do it again in November. And so what Wall Street is thinking, oh, that means a recession, which we are going into it. So there was this massive short position. But the other thing that's going on on the other side is we have massive inflation inputs, just as Mark was talking about. I think the core rate of inflation is still going to be rising. So inflation is going to be persistent. So the demand for silver, which you know investment demand represents about 30% of uh, fil uh, silver usage, and the demand has been strong, and you're seeing that reflected in what you have to pay for, let's say, sovereign coins, whether it's eagles or maple leaves. So right now, the COMEX is down to about $40 million. And something I learned from Dave Morgan back in the OO decade is that whenever you get down to about 35 million ounces left on the exchange, and it's also flying, gold is flying out the door as well. So that gets dangerous. So take a look at the shorts are going to be in a dangerous position because what you don't want to do is be able to default and not be able to deliver on a short position. And that's that's a position that they could possibly find themselves 
if they don't start to unwind that. Because remember, as Bob pointed out, 70% of silver demand is industrial. It's also, in terms of producing silver, it's a byproduct of other metals, gold, copper, zinc. So if you take a look at, you know, there's very few pure silver producers. It's more of a byproduct from the other miners. So you're seeing it today with investment products like coins. They're undersupplied. And Chris, the mint is even having a problem getting product. And the mint doesn't operate like a business. If I was operating a business and I had three to four times the demand for my product, I would ramp up my business. I would hire more workers. I'd start producing more. That's not the way the government thinks. So we got this massive short position that's on Wall Street. And I think uh, you could see here shortly a massive spike in the price of silver. So, you know, that's one of, you know, I own three or four things. My biggest holdings are in oil. Second is silver. Third is copper. Fourth is base metals. And I, I, I just, you know, for obvious reasons I've been writing about, I've never seen commodities this undervalued, just like the folks that you interview at Gehring and Rosenswag, who have that graph I've used a couple of times in recent articles that show that commodities relative financial assets are the cheapest that they've been in 120 years. And if you look at that graph, and I'd highly recommend you go to Financial Sense, look at our blog. I've got two articles there that are supporting a lot of things that we're throwing out today with a lot of resources where you can check the facts and do your own research. But whenever you have things this undervalued, it's followed by a spike in the opposite direction. And I think that's where we're heading. So, Jim, it sounds like you're all in on commodities then. Oh, deep. <laughs> One of the things, you know, when you take a look, I love long-term themes. I mean, that's just the way I invest. I like to get on board of a, a theme or uh, something that's developing in the marketplace that's going to take you know, a good decade to play out, whether it was commodities in the OO decade, dividend stocks. To me, it's commodities right now. And what I see happening, the, the main drivers of commodities in the OO decade was demand. It was China industrializing. It was India industrializing. So you had this tremendous amount of demand that came in the marketplace from emerging markets that were creating this big demand for raw materials, whether it's copper, you name it, they were using it because we outsource our manufacturing to China. It's reversing uh, right now, as Peter Zion has talked about in his book, Deglobalization. But the main drivers I see right now are green and ESG. That's going to develop. I mean, you take a look at those windmills and the solar panels, the raw inputs of that are base metals. And then the second thing where it was demand-driven in the OO decade, it's going to be reverse in this decade. It's going to be supply. Everywhere you look, and I've shown this in grass, whether you're looking at aluminum, whether you're looking at copper, whether you're looking at oil, inventory levels are dropping and staying low. And we've seen that also with the oil inventory. There was a very bullish report, just to go back to oil for a second, by the EIA, showing a big drop in inventory levels uh, of oil. And we're seeing this on all the base metals. So this, the two main drivers 
of commodities this decade. It's going to be a supply-related issue, and it's going to be green and ESG. So by just to give you an example, if we want to hit all these carbon targets by 2050, I mean, just listen to this. It's going to take, uh, for just wind and solar, it's going to take 3,200 tons of steel, 310 million tons of aluminum, 40 million tons of copper. Solar and wind will take 15 times the amount of cement, 90 times the amount of aluminum, 50 times the amount of iron, copper, and glass. And it's going to take, basically, we're going to have to increase mining by a 1,000%. The problem is we're not doing that. We just vetoed a copper cobalt mine in Minnesota. We just kind of nixed the idea of one of the largest lithium deposits they found in Maine. So we're going to have to pivot on mining because otherwise we're going to rely on China. And China is becoming OPEC on steroids when it comes to rare earths and other base metals. And it's not just that they're dominating it with their own production. They're going elsewhere. They're going into Africa. They're going into South America. And they're becoming this giant OPEC, a base and key raw materials that drive green. So do we really want to find ourselves in a position where we want to make this energy transition, but we're dependent on one supplier, another OPEC? Do we want to find ourselves in the same position that Europe finds itself in today? You know, I don't think we're going to want to be there. So we're going to have to change. But that is going to be one of the biggest drivers because right now, China controls 95% of rare earth minerals. And you can't make a cell phone. You can't make all this, you know, all this high-tech equipment. I don't care if you're talking about watches, iPads, cell phones, laptops. All this high-tech world that we live in runs on rare earths and minerals. And right now, there's a dearth of new discoveries. We're not producing enough. There hasn't been a lot of money that's gone into it. So the issue is going to be supply-driven as well as green and ESG. And that's why, Chris, like I said, I'm all in. So, Jim, as you said, you're all in when it comes to commodities with uh, big positions in energy, but also now with silver and copper and a number of these other critical materials that we've discussed and that you also outlined in your recent article we posted on Financial Sense, why the green energy will continue to power the commodity boom. What is it that Financial Sense Wealth Management is doing for clients at this point? Well, I just took our energy position up to the, the accounts that I manage up to 15%. Commodities now represent 30% because, Chris, if you take a look at periods, and this was done by Ibbotson and Associates and Mesero Financial about high correlations in a high inflationary environment. And energy is right there at the top of the list. You have things like key basic materials and industrials. And it was interesting because you would think real estate, real estate like REITs does not do well as well in a high inflationary environment. It's actually individual real estate that does much better. So we're into commodities because of the this turnaround in bull market that I see as one of the biggest bull markets of our lifetime. And at some point, Chris, the Fed will need to pivot uh, or risk throwing the world into basically a depression. And another factor that's going to blow people's minds, we see one of the biggest trades next year also coming in the bond market. 
So we're positioning ourselves for that as well. This is the worst bond market we've seen since 1974. You cannot imagine how much money has been lost in bonds this year. Like I said, Fed funds rate zero at the beginning of the year. We'll probably end up at four and a half to four and three quarters by the time we close out the year. So uh, a big spike in interest rates. And if the Fed doesn't watch it at some point, they will push us off the cliff. And I'm, I'm not just talking about a recession. I'm talking about a possible depression. And I just don't think at some point you're going to see lawmakers are going to say, what the hell are you doing? Is Mark already said, the UN has come out against it. You'll probably see the IMF come out uh, against these central bankers like, what the hell are you guys doing? And like I said, the easy way to stop what we're seeing right now, start drilling, stop spending. And it's that simple. But it's going to take a while before they wake up to that point. And that's usually what the Fed does. The thing is, the Fed is just going, going in terms of they're not stopping to to see, all right, there's always a lag effect when you're raising interest rates. There's a six to nine month lag. They're not stopping to see what the aftershocks are going to be. And that's the problem that they have. So just as they were overly loose on monetary policy, keeping it way too low with the idea, hey, it was transitory. Now they're not stopping to say, wait a minute, we've, we've gone from zero to three and a quarter, and they're about ready to go to four. Maybe we should go a little bit slower and see what the lag effects are to see how this plays out in the economy. They're not doing that. They're going full steam. They're going 100 miles an hour. And unfortunately, you're going to hit a wall and they're going to crash. And uh, But that's that's what the Fed does. Like I said, they keep going until they break things. And if you look around globally, whether it's credit spreads, things going on in Europe, you're starting to see cracks all over the place and they're going to get bigger. So that's that's how we're positioned. Well, Jim, it sounds like given what you've been talking about now for over two years, I'm predicting that we would see a big wave of inflation, which we see today, and also an energy crisis. A large part of this, as we discussed today, is the massive policy-induced imbalances that we see both on the demand and the supply side. And not only do we need to see a major pivot on the monetary policy side with the Fed, as we now see things starting to break and unravel with all these cracks that you just mentioned, but we also need to see a major pivot on the fiscal and regulatory side, which we have also discussed with the administration moving away from just relying on liquidating our strategic petroleum reserves, but actually moving towards opening up drilling and our domestic production. We have seen that pivot take place uh, from their extremely anti-fossil fuel policy in Europe because circumstances have forced them to do that. And until this administration or this country decides that we're going to make that pivot as well, if we don't do that now, we're going to end up very similar to Europe because, as you pointed out today, we are extremely dependent upon China for the mining, refining, processing of so many different critical metals and raw materials for the green energy boom. So the more we push in this direction, the more we make ourselves dependent upon one of our biggest competitors out there. So that's not good from a long-term strategic perspective. So there needs to be a pivot on many fronts. And, you know, this is going to be, uh, Chris, one of those, I, I, I hearken this period back to 1966 and 1982, where you had short bull markets and 
uh, longer bear markets. And I, I see that. I, I, I just don't think passive investing and index investing will not work this decade. And uh, the biggest proof I can give you is what's happened to index investors this year. They've been just slaughtered, whether you were in bonds or you were in stock indexes. I mean, you've, you've taken some big, heavy hits. So you're going to have to get more specific, more target. It's going to be a more active market. If you don't do it, you're going to get run over. Well, as we close out today's show, please remember to spread the word about Financial Sense News Hour with your friends and family. As always, today's podcast is brought to you by Financial Sense Wealth Management, which has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you have any questions about our asset management or our financial planning services, feel free to click where it says contact us on financialsense.com, or you can also call us directly at 888 3939. In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for tuning into the Financial Sense News Hour. Until we talk again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk